Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. On any given day, we have this profound existential soul power to practice or not. You can't do anything about the past, but you can practice today. And as we practice in the ways that work for us, we grow, we change, we heal, we get happy, we progress, we can see that. And that's the invitation for everyone. Wherever you are, you can practice. And you can practice one of these seven things, and you can practice all of them at a beginning level, at an intermediate level, and beyond. That was Dr. Rick Hansen on Psychologist Off the Clock. We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, director of the Center for Stress and Anxiety Management. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologist Off the Clock. We all know there are trade-offs in life, like having to drive a little further to save on gas or groceries. But when it comes to your health, you shouldn't have to trade off. So don't go back to that one doctor who's always late and rushes through your appointment just because they're close by or they take your slightly sketchy insurance. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. You can search by location, availability, insurance, literally no trade-offs here because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you know. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. My kid's pediatrician is retiring this summer, so you can bet I will be using ZocDoc to find someone new who we all love and trust. So go to ZocDoc.com POTC and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot P-O-T-C, ZocDoc.com P-O-T-C. Our sponsor today is Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. I love my Uplift standing desk. It's solid and sturdy and allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. The ability to switch from sitting to standing throughout the day has been a complete game changer for me. I feel so much better than when I sit all day, and it helps me stay alert when I get tired. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk everything you need to up your office game. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you are supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com slash POTC for 5% off your order. 
That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com slash P-O-T-C to get 5% off your entire order. Psychologist Off the Clock is so happy to be partnering with Praxis Continuing Education. They offer programming for mental health practitioners in a lot of the areas that we've discussed on the show. And we're extra excited to announce a six-week program with Dr. Robin Walser that's going to be starting May 15th that we highly recommend. It's on treating trauma with ACT. And Dr. Walser, as you know, is such an expert in the field. We've had her on the show a number of times. And she is going to talk about how to use ACT principles like mindfulness and acceptance in your trauma treatment repertoire, how to discover the power of leveraging the therapeutic stance in trauma treatment. She'll review the current state of research on using ACT in trauma, and you'll learn to navigate client challenges that are specific to trauma. So check that out at praxiscet.net. You can also find it through our sponsorship page. We're also really excited about Rick Hansen's new book and, and his online programming that's associated with the book Neurodharma. You can check out Neurodharma, the program, through our sponsorship page, and there is a special coupon code for $40 off if you go through us. So check that out at offtheclockpsych.com. Hope to see you there. Again, to introduce the second part of this two-part series of Rick Hansen talking about his new book, Neurodharma. And in our introduction today, I just wanted to ask you to tell our listeners about one or two of your favorite Rick Hansen practices that you use most regularly to cultivate your own centeredness or cultivate your own happiness. I love his heal practice. I think that's the one that I teach the most to my clients and that I use the most. So heal is really savoring uh, positive moments. And you have a positive moment, H, you enrich it with the E, you amplify it with the A, and then you link it to maybe some more more difficult moments. That is really powerful, especially right now when we just maybe need to find little glimpses of positive, healing, wholesome moments to take in and really download. I also really appreciate his way that he describes the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, which are the three refuges in Buddhism. And he brings them into uh, more modern day, the more modern day world. So the Buddha being who are your teachers that you really find wise and that you can turn to right now. And I certainly find that helpful reading readings of people that I find inspiring. Uh, what are the teachings that they offer? That's the Dharma. And then the Sangha, what is your community? And I think that using those refuges, building those up in your own life can be incredibly helpful, a place to turn to when things are really uncertain. Yeah. Yeah. Now is a time when a lot of us are thinking about these larger existential issues. And in the second part, he really talks about some of those larger sort of issues of like timelessness, of mortality, of how we sort of see ourselves in the broader scope of the world. And what's so beautiful about the way that he presents it is it it feels really accessible. And then he also gives you some on the ground things that you can do to manage some of the uncertainty, some of the anxiety, and some of the sort of open questioning that I think is really facing all of us right now. So I think as uh, podcast hosts, psychologists, moms, and just humans, we've been really hungry for who, who is it that we can bring on the show that's going to be like a, a guide for, for all of us, for us personally and for all of you. And we've been so privileged to have this little series here of Robin Walsler talking on existentialism and her wisdom around that, Rick Hansen, a couple episodes, and then Paul Gilbert coming up. And it feels like we're just 
uh, getting a chance to hear from real leaders that are leading, they're really leading us through these difficult times. So mm-hmm. take comfort in the words of Rick Hansen. Let's move on to receiving nowness. Yeah. So this is the importance of waking up into the present moment. So you had mentioned, and, and there's certainly a lot of evidence to support this, that our brains are typically wired to be worrying about the future or ruminating about the past. I'm curious if you can speak a little bit about how missing the now diminishes our happiness and how we can work towards being more present in the now. Oh, that's great. So on the one hand, as a lot of research shows, the more people are caught up in mental time traveling, uh, the future or the past, the more they tend to be distressed, discontent, and dysfunctional. Uh, on the other hand, as people come more and more into the present, their sense of well-being also tends to increase. Now, in the present may well be experiences of pain physical or emotional, that are challenging for a person, that drive them into a kind of flight from the present into the future or the past. And um, so I want to certainly acknowledge that that fact. On the other hand, as uh, you know, John Kabat-Zinn's early work on mindfulness for chronic, terrible, intractable pain shows, in a funny kind of way, when you actually come into the present and then fully into the present, not just kind of hovering around the edges of the present of the pain in your knee or the pain in your back or the loss of someone you love. But when you come really, really close to the ongoing dynamic emergence of the sensation or the emotion or the thoughts related to it, when you come, come I think of the, the, the experience now is like a spring coming out from a mountain cleft, just coming into first contact with the air. When you get really, really close to that first emergence of an experience into awareness, uh, it starts breaking up. It starts becoming foamier and fuzzier. You get really close to its impermanence and it becomes airier and much less painful. There is pain in it, but it doesn't preoccupy or invade you when you come really, really radically close to the present, even when you're dealing with the hardest things of all. So that's contextual. And um, it also, uh, I find remarkably, is that these these uh, circuits in the brain serve each other. So steadiness, lovingness, and fullness kind of cluster together neurologically in various ways. Wholeness, nowness, and allness also in terms of their underlying neural substrates, the underlying neural correlates, if you will, of those experiences also cluster together. So when you come into a sense of wholeness, that naturally tends to move you into the present. When you come into the sense of the present, the sense of me, myself, and I beleaguered and separated from everything diminishes, and there's more of an openness to everything. And in the book, as you know, I I go into, you know, useful detail about um, how that all works neurologically. And still, meanwhile, people can experience it you know, experientially. So when you come right into the present, uh, you get very close to what's called the alerting and orienting circuitry of the attention system in the brain. And when you're just being with what's new, something is happening, something is happening, something is happening. Uh, You're just in the what's happening before all kinds of fussing and feuding and preoccupying and resenting and worrying and obsessing can take hold because that uh, 
takes more time to process and to occur. And if you're right at the emergent edge of everything, it's all happening so quickly and it's all changing so quickly that there's nothing to suffer. Uh, you've got to cope, you've got to function, and you're more effective because you're right in the moment with what's happening instantly in the moment. But you're not uh, lost in thought, worrying about everything. It's great. It's so cool. I'm just sort of sitting here thinking about how I'm kind of having one of those moments. I'm sitting here talking to, you know, the esteemed Dr. Rick Hansen, you know, which is such a cool thing to be gaining your wisdom and, and talking to you about your powerful book. And I have a tendency to worry about how the podcast is going and if the audio is okay and whether I'm going to have to edit and if I sound okay. But if I'm just sort of in the moment listening and, and absorbing it's such an opening experience and, and you can be more effective and responsive as opposed to, you know, where you can go if you're worrying about the future or ruminating about something silly you said, you know, five minutes ago. Yeah, yeah that's right. And, um, and again, learning from our teachers. Uh, if, if I've got a teacher I respect and I want to, in my case, be a better rock climber, uh, let's say. Um, and my teacher says, try this, you know, shift your knee out, which will bring your hip closer to the rock and it'll shift your center of gravity. Give it a whirl. It's valuable to do that. I'm going to trust them. I'm going to, you know, want to see the evidence for it over time, but I'm going to give it a try, especially if it doesn't sound too crazy. In much the same way, all the great teachers talk about the power of now, be here now, the present moment is the only moment we have. Um, there are some lovely quotes. I have a lot of quotations in the book that are really inspiring. And there's some beautiful Can I quotes. share a quote from oh, your please. wife that I loved? Okay, I love good. that you included a quote from your wife. But she, she you wrote that she said, uh, after having read your book, if we don't have now, we don't have much. I mean, now is, is so powerful. Yeah, yeah. that's exactly that. right. So I'm going to go after it. So in that spirit then reverse engineering in the brain, in the hardware, what's happening when people are lost uh, in time traveling, imagining a future, imagining a past, compared to what's happening in the brain when they're right in the present moment. And there's some very useful, practical uh, neurology about that. And one of the takeaways for people um, is to get a sense of what it's like to be alerted to something new. This is the most ancient aspect of the attention system because it's the most primitive. You don't need to know where something is or what it is or what to do about it. You're just tracking that something has changed. Something has happened. Tune in to this very fundamental kind of primal animal quality of something new, something new, something new. And it helps to do this to let go of the need to know or conceptualize or figure out or control, just just relax, you know, surrender a little bit and know what it feels like to be alerted to the next new thing. And with practice, you become more and more able to do that. And as you get closer and closer to the subject of now, to the new, the new, the new, nowness, receiving, as a feeling of receiving, that's why I use that word, receiving, uh, receiving nowness. As you do that, also, you get closer and closer to the objective now, to the emergence of new time in the expansion of the four-dimensional space-time universe that we have. And in effect, as you come into the subject of now, you get closer and closer to the moment of creation. 
continuously. Yeah. Which kind of brings us to the power of opening into interbeing and, and this allocentric view that we are all a part of something much greater than ourselves. In fact, we're all just stardust, <laughs> right? Which I, I love that you make reference to that. You know, our brains are so self-referential, but there's also these interconnected parts of our brain that can help us recognize that there is this sense of allness. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how we can build on that how, and how that helps us to experience more happiness. Yeah. Um, in everyday life, certainly, the more that people feel separated, lonely, disconnect, disconnected, um, the more they feel that uh, they're living in a kind of barren, hostile universe that's not supportive. Well, suffering, uh, dis- distress, and mental health issues increase. On the other hand, the more that um, people feel uh, that they're supported by the universe in some ways, that they're part of nature, let's say. Uh, research shows that the more that people have a, a sense of being part of nature, uh, being part of a larger whole, that well-being tends to increase. And speaking of these teachers and practitioners who are a little farther up the path, they all talk about how uh, there's a growing sense in them of being kind of more permeable or porous to reality, less defended against it, less braced stressfully against it, and more of kind of awestruck gratitude at, as Dogen said, perceiving themselves as all things operating locally. So it's in that frame of valuing the qualities of opening into allness that I've inquired into, okay, what's the state of the art? What's the current research that uh, seems to underlie or support both really remarkable, non-ordinary, classic experiences of the sense of self just dropping out and the world shining forth in radiant perfection that probably about a third of the people worldwide who are surveyed report having had those full enchilada experiences. I've had a lot of uh, smaller, milder versions of those experiences. And uh, as a point of practice for me, what most matters over time is becoming increasingly porous and and foamy and and accessible, uh, while also certainly appreciating the power of these million-dollar moments or these super fireworks experiences. There's pretty good science about what is happening in the brain during these major league fireworks, non-dual experiences, self-transcendent experiences. Uh, And a little shout out here. I just had the pleasure of interviewing David Bryce Yaden, who's getting his PhD in the next few months at Penn, who has written some wonderful major papers on self-transcendent experiences. So there's good science about it. And also there's science about in everyday life, what happens when the sense of egocentrism and taking things personally gradually starts to diminish. And there is more of that everyday sense of just being uh, beautifully connected with everything with a sense of awe and gratitude as well. That's really great stuff. And um, I could, maybe for people listening, I'll give you a couple of quick hacks. One of them is really interesting. So visually, so the brain naturally oscillates uh, between what's called an egocentric, self-referential, perceptual perspective. It doesn't mean selfish. It just means in reference to this particular body, this particular point of view. And then that alternates, especially visually, with what's called an allocentric perspective, taking things as a whole. 
kind of an impersonal view. What's this? What's the jungle as it is? That's allocentric right around me. And then egocentric is, you know, what's right in front of me and what do I want to do about it? All right. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. This is a natural way to help animals do well back in the Stone Age or in Jurassic Park. So there's this natural rhythm. We can strengthen that allocentric capacity plausibly in a variety of ways. One is to um, extend the visual field out toward the horizon. Because as we and other animals extend our, our, our sight out toward the horizon, that naturally uh, brings online more and more of that allocentric frame of reference because we're seeing things as a big picture whole, right? On the other hand, if you bring your gaze close to your body, and you can do this, it's easy. When you bring it close to your body, naturally there's an increase of kind of self-centeredness or self, not in a negative sense, but you know, like the, the point of view, this, the feeling of I tends to increase as the gaze comes closer because that's natural, you know, friend or foe. Uh, in the wild, you know, things are much more personally relevant the closer they get, whereas the farther away they are, the more we have time to kind of take in the big picture and see what's really going on, right? That's great. So if you're getting all obsessed about something or contracted, look out toward the walls or even the upper corners of the room you're in, right? Or when you're walking down the street, you know, see what happens when you try to get a feeling of the visual hole, the wider hole. You're going to lighten up about, you know, me, myself, and I. That's a cool practice. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I take a look at the horizon. Yeah, right there. How do you do that? And maybe another one just really fast that I find also really interesting. And these, these intertwine with each other. Um, in terms of opening into allness, for me is where I explore this fundamental question of, is there a self? And what do we mean by that question? What do we mean by the word self? And this is deep territory. Is there a self? Right? What do we mean self? And what's... Um, I love that you weren't afraid to ask that question. And it's a really fascinating exploration for those of you who, um, you know, pick up the book and, and have a chance to get into it. Oh, yeah. And, and how to balance the importance of taking in healthy narcissistic supplies. How do we balance the usefulness of taking in being mirrored and seen like children? We want our children to take in healthy narcissistic supplies because that's necessary for healthy development. So how do we appreciate that? And how as adults, as I have had to do, can we gradually fill the hole in our heart left over by from what was missing in terms of what was internalized as a kid? How as adults can we take in these healthy social supplies without getting attached to them? How can we fill ourselves up from the inside out so we're less and less preoccupied with getting social supplies from the outside in? How can you do all that wisely without feeding the presumption that there's some brick-like entity inside pulling the levers and pushing the dials and driving the show? And, you know, that's really interesting territory, really interesting territory, including neurologically. And, and one of the um, very useful things about neuroscience is that it shows that in the brain, when people are having a strong sense of self, maybe they're picking out their picture from a group of pictures, or maybe they're stating their view about a morally charged topic like capital punishment, say, or abortion, 
or they are um, describing themselves. You know, am I a generally happy person? Am I a generally grumpy person? Let's say when they're doing those things, activations occur throughout the entire brain. There's no place in the brain where the self is located. And this ordinary sense we have of being unified as a self is actually not the case in both our experience and in our neurology. It's not unified. It's compounded. It's widely distributed. Also, the sense that we have of being enduring, I'm kind of always the same. Well, actually, you can just observe in your experience that the sense of self increases. There are different subpersonalities that tug at us, that pull us in different directions. Where you know, it, there's a dynamism to it. There's not this uh, stability to the apparent self. And the same in the brain. These activations are very dynamic. They ebb, they flow, neurotransmitters come, they go, circuitry lights up, it quiets down, comes, it goes. And last, um, the sense we have of being independent, you know, it's sort of, I can decide what I really think about it. Whew. Again, in your experience, you can see how jostled and tugged you are by all kinds of things over the course of your day. And in the brain, these various activations are caused by all kinds of factors. They're dependently occurring. They're dependently arising or originating, to use that kind of terminology from Buddhism. So the net of it is that in both our own psychology, our own experience, and in the underlying hardware, we see that these three fundamental qualities that we conventionally presume define the self, that it's unified, enduring, and independent are not to be found. And actually, that takes you into this wonderful feeling of being a person who has rights and needs and responsibilities, a person, a much more distributed, flowing, like a symphony rather than a solo instrument, as you move through your day, and when you start having more and more of that feeling of things, oh, you lighten up, you take stuff less personally, you're, you're less resistant or stony. When the world comes at you, you're more like a cloud, you know, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune fall through rather than having something solid to land on. Um, that's great. And you, just like you said at the beginning, you start being increasingly clear that what you know rationally, conceptually, is really, really true, that you really are just a local expression of the whole universe. And uh, as you said, we are breathing stardust. We are breathing oxygen built in the heart of an exploding star billions of years ago. Uh, wow. Yeah. That's great. It is great. I Just to sort of summarize it, you have this quote in your book from Thich Nhat Hanh that I loved, which is, we inter are, as practitioners, we see that we are part of and not separate from the soil, the forests, the rivers, and the sky. Oh, and I, I love that. It's yeah. it, There's something so beautiful about that. If, if I may, yeah, just to course. underline two brief things. Um in that quote, I really touched, you brought it up. And for me, Thich Han is a model uh, of beings I happen to know, not well personally, but I know of, uh, who is a model of about as far as long as you can get. And um, so, and who knows, he might say there are levels of realization that are maybe a step or two farther, but he's pretty far along. 
And so I just want to honor him and also speak to uh, two points. One related to this notion of inner being, which he's very eloquent about. As part of our practice, we do it for the sake of others and we bring them with us in our heart as we practice on our own. And that's an important point to call out. And to be motivated for the sake of others in our practice is an important and beautiful thing. And to feel that even in this moment, you are practicing with others, literally around the world, and also inside you are the residues, you know, the traces left behind by the people that, as Mr. Rogers put it, at his Emmy Award uh, ceremony 20 years ago, beings who have loved you into being, people who have loved you into being. They're with you. And that's, that's a very important aspect of practice. The second related thing is that the implications of personal practice scale up politically and culturally and socially. In other words, as individuals have more of a sense of inner being with other humans and also as individuals have more of a sense of inner being with nature broadly, that leads us into policy and um, public policy and act actions at the public level and in the public sphere that are more oriented around cooperation rather than aggression and more oriented around a sustainable relationship with the natural world rather than uh, dumping 100 million tons a day of carbon dioxide into the air through human activity. Right. So these practices can have a really profound effect on our world in a very concrete way. Yeah. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Reading your book was a really awe-inspiring experience for me. I, I love this kind of content. And again, the marriage of the ancient Eastern philosophy with the modern science just really and awakens a part of me that I think hungers for like this bigger truth. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that I'll say too that I was going to mention in the Finding Timelessness is a recent experience that I had of losing my father. And it's something I've talked about on the podcast before, but this idea that everything is impermanent, mm -hmm. which kind of runs throughout, you know, all the different practices um, and, and sort of how we can approach that with gratitude and openness and, and how we can manage the sorrow that can come with mm -hmm. it, I think is, your writing on that is just very powerful for me. So I really appreciate mm -hmm. that. Well, I'm glad for that. And, and I do hope you include this bit in our conversation in the podcast, uh, because you, you are demonstrating um, a way of relating to this material that's really important. And we all have a sense of it. 
it might sound exotic at first, or we might say, oh, that's too kind of out there, esoteric, new age or something or other. But actually, we this is our endowment as human beings to be in the present, connected with everything, you know, with a whole and open heart, steadily, calmly, you know, functioning every day. This is our endowment. We're able to do it. And you're, you're demonstrating that. You're not just thinking about it. You're feeling it. And, uh, which, uh, shows that we can feel these things. Uh, we might need to slow down for a minute or two to kind of drop in. But when we drop in, it really is available to us. And then we develop it over time from there. Well, and it's, it's great that you offer these very concrete, accessible practices to be able to do it because I do think it can feel so big and daunting. Yeah, that's true. The book's super experiential. I went back and I started rereading Buddha's Brain to my wife, which is really interesting. So I, I wrote that book about 12 years ago, and I'm, I'm quite happy with it. Uh, it still is good. It's still okay. And uh, I noticed how um, in this book, Neurodharma, there are many more experiential practices. It really is a book of practice because I think that's the real test deep down inside. Right. Because if we're talking about cultivating something, we need to be doing something, not just sort of up in our minds, but but sort of really taking yeah. action, sort of doing yeah. something with our bodies to build, you know, these neurological pathways and, and these affective experiences and, and these kinds of relationships that are healthier and more satisfying and rewarding. Yeah. So I love yeah. That's great. So, um, so let's turn to talking about finding timelessness, another very deep and sort of huge question that you ask, which is, you know, what is time? And you admit that time is an undeniably hard thing to define, but I love how you describe that we're always living on the razor thin edge of the front edge of now. As soon as we arrive, a new now emerges. It's, it is really awe-inspiring and really gets to the heart of the idea that everything we experience is impermanent. Yeah. Experience is radically impermanent, no doubt about it. There's certain features of the physical universe that seem to have more stability to them, like the actual speed of light. Although even that might be changing over time as the universe increases its rate of expansion, which it seems to have done, you know, over the last several billion years for still utterly mysterious reasons. Uh, but on the whole, yes, impermanence is one of the great facts. Uh, including the radical impermanence of our own experience, just right under our noses. Uh, let me talk about timelessness in three different ways. And I want to use the term unconditioned, which is a little controversial in some quarters. I'm fine with other ways of framing that word, like unfabricated or unconstructed. But I like the notion of unconditioned because it seems to apply both to uh, the conditioned stream of consciousness and the conditioned unfolding of the material universe. All right. So the Buddha said that conditioned reality is an unreliable basis for the highest happiness. And so we should look for what is unconditioned. And in his own account of his own awakening and in these descriptions that are found again and again in the surviving written record of his teachings, um, there is a movement toward what he called unconditioned in some radically distinct, meaningfully distinct way from ordinary reality. Uh, related terminology is nirvana, nibbana. That's the Buddhist tradition. And then outside of that tradition, um, you have indigenous people, uh, traditions around the world, which are very important to 
respect and call out and appreciate as contemplative traditions. Then you have the so-called major religions, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, and, and others. And in them as well is a pointing to uh, what lies beyond ordinary reality. So what are they talking about? You know, if we're going to go after the pinnacle of human possibility, this is included, all right? What are they talking about? And how can we explore it without falling into the pitfalls of religious belief and, and controversy? And um, I also think it's important to not fall into the pitfall of dogmatic atheism because a genuinely scientific attitude is agnostic because uh, the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, as the saying has it in science. And there are many things that are clearly true that science cannot prove, such as if you, let's say, love your children, no scientist in the world can prove that. And yet it's undeniably a fact and you know it's true. So uh, how do, you know, part of the fun is to explore that territory. So in terms of exploring it, to cut to the chase here, I think there are three ways we can understand this really important word, unconditioned. One way we can understand it is in typical everyday experience. We can disengage from our conditioned habit patterns, neurotic habit patterns that are problematic. We can disengage from, from those conditioned patterns and rest increasingly in. So we disengage from what's conditioned and we rest increasingly in what is effectively unconditioned, which is the field of awareness. Imagine a piece of blank paper. Yes, the piece of paper is conditioned. It was made, it's manufactured, it comes from trees, blah, blah, blah. Um, and yet that piece of paper can represent an infinite variety of words, symbols, images, and so forth. So it's effectively unconditioned as a field of possibility, unconditioned possibility in which conditioned forms can occur. Awareness is like that. Awareness is a field of effectively unconditioned possibility that can represent an infinite variety of experiences or a kind of field in which an infinite variety of experiences can occur. So the first simplest, most available way to relate to unconditioned is, as I said, to disengage from conditioned habit patterns and abide increasingly in unconditioned awareness. That's great. That's no small thing. I don't think that's what the Buddha was pointing to. I think he had bigger fish to fry. Sorry for the carnivorous metaphor. Bigger, you know, tofu to skewer. But anyway, the second way to understand unconditioned uh, is a extraordinary experience within ordinary reality in which uh, in deep meditative training, and the process of this is well described, and many, many people report having gone through these steps, certainly in the Buddhist tradition, and you see similar kind of sorts of things in other deep contemplative traditions where people move out of ordinary experiencing. They start losing sensory awareness of what's happening around them. They're still awake internally. They're still conscious. Their minds are getting incredibly quiet. Ordinary thought, verbal thought has fallen away a long time already. Uh, any kind of desire is falling away. Any sense of upset is falling away. Deep feeling of stability, peacefulness, a, a kind of profound happiness and bliss that is also very subtle is occurring. And then more and more radical, 
in territory that in the Buddhist tradition has language like not, neither perception nor non-perception, and then cessation, the cessation of ordinary consciousness, nibbana, and then the return from that radically non-ordinary experience, and then the return from nirvana or nibbana and cessation, you start to observe the constructing of the mind process, but in a very deep, profound way. Uh, and then the gradual return to ordinary functioning. I have not been on that journey myself. I've known a number of people who have, who are ordinary. They have jobs, they pay taxes, they have mortgages, you know, they have kids. They're real people. They've gone through those trainings and they've come back to talk about it. And, um, with practice, those trainings and that process of entering cessation and nibbana and then return gives you a radically disenchanted view of the ordinary mind. You're engaging it, but you're holding it so much more lightly, so much more loosely. And uh, with repetition, those experiences of cessation and nibbana, which again, I've known people who have done those trainings in depth, um, just change your life forever. Okay, but we're still inside ordinary reality, right? And um, then the question becomes the third way to understand unconditioned or unconditionality or the unconditioned. And here's where I use the word transcendental. What could be genuinely distinct from ordinary reality? Uh, Not just supernatural, that's the territory of ESP or ghosts or reincarnation, you know, whatever's true about that is whatever's true about that. But the ultimate, the ultimate reality, the ultimate nature, the ultimate ground, if it's distinct from ordinary reality, is genuinely transcendental. So then the question becomes, when we are having experiences in which conditioned mental activity drops out, if only for an instant, it's like a pinprick through the veil of shrouds us uh, inside ordinary reality and obscures the transcendental. But when that veil is pierced, one little pinprick at a time, one little hole in the veil at a time, a little ray of light starts shining through. And with repetition, that shroud becomes more and more frayed, more and more porous, more and more lacy, and you start having more and more sense of accessibility or availability or permeability to what could be genuinely transcendental. That's a remarkable practice. And in my view, the Buddha was pointing to the genuinely, uh, transcendentally unconditioned. And in other great wisdom traditions, other roots of the mountain of awakening, they're much more explicit about it. The Buddha was very spare in his language. He really just talked about the fundamental attribute of the potential transcendental as unconditioned possibility that that he described it through negation, the deathless, the unchanging. Other people attribute qualities of consciousness to the transcendental, a kind of infinite consciousness. Some attribute qualities of benevolence, love. These words fall apart, but they point in that direction. Uh, I'm not trying to, in the book, preach those things at all. I'm mostly focused on the unconditioned field of possibility because that's closest to the Buddhist tradition. On the other hand, from the standpoint of diversity and inclusiveness, I want to include and respect people who come from traditions that do attribute 
those qualities to the transcendental of consciousness and love and and maybe some other things as well. So anyway, so that's the territory. And then how I get at it in real reality uh, is through ways of exploring what could be like the transcendental. And that distinction between is and like is really important. So a piece of paper is like the potentially transcendentally unconditioned in the sense that it can represent anything. Uh, the sense of the next moment is ripe with possibility. Uh, the proverb that the future is the undiscovered country, that's like the potential transcendental. Stillness, a sense of stillness, the unmoving, the unchanging, around which or through which change passes, we can get a sense of that as well. Deep silence, deep quiet uh, in our own experience that is like the potentially transcendental. And these things that are like the potentially transcendental um, are valuable in their own right. Stillness, spaciousness, possibility. Um, those are really great to tune into on our own. And um, I myself am okay with people who, some of whom are my major teachers, and I quote them in the book, and I really respect their view, and I try to represent it accurately, that from their standpoint, um, that which is transcendental either doesn't exist or it's unknowable, or even if it's knowable in some way, it's irrelevant to deep practice. And uh, one can go through the process of awakening without engaging something genuinely transcendental. That's okay with me. I'm fine with that. That's still pretty far out. You're getting really close to the tippity tip top of the mountain of awakening. That's cool. And for those for whom the transcendental seems like the ultimate undiscovered country, the ultimate important possibility to explore or a sense of, well, of course. I know a number of people whose their attitude about the transcendental is, of course. Uh, for those as well, in terms of inclusiveness, I wanted to uh, speak to. I'm in the latter camp. Uh, my own experience and my own uh, reasoning tells me that ordinary reality is not all that is. And um, my own practice inside the natural frame a lot, which is very grounded in the body, what's happening in the body and what's happening in the immediacy of this moment of experience authentically and honestly. That's where my practice lives, because I think that's where practice needs to live. Uh, I'm interested in the results of that practice, both in terms of the natural frame, helping me be a better husband, helping me be less reactive to uh, you know the politics of the day, while being able also to have wisdom and strength and keep moving forward toward the good. You know, I'm very interested in that, of course, and honestly, being honest here, um, I'm interested in the fruits of practice within the natural frame that have to do potentially with becoming more available to the divine. I love that. I wonder if I could share with our listeners um, a favorite quote of mine from the book. It's towards the end and you write, it's strange, isn't it? This life you live and love and then you leave. My time will come and yours and everyone else's. Meanwhile, we can be gobsmacked with awe and gratitude and committed to enjoying this life as best we can while learning as much as we can and contributing as much as we can each day. I, I just think that's so beautiful. And, oh, thank and, you. I'm extremely touched that you pulled that out. It's one of my really favorite parts. Thank you. Yeah. Well, and I think your book really offers a collection of, of wisdom and practices and knowledge that can help each of us 
cultivate more of that sense of awe and gratitude and build more of that happiness that, that we all desire. And I love how you have such a flexible approach to, you know, what a diversity of experiences and bodies and circumstances and that you've developed these practices and shared these kind of practices that we can flexibly use individually to the best that we can to, to cultivate that kind of happiness that, that is so makes life so much more fun. <laughs> oh, good. Well, thank you. And I think that's really important, the fun part and the playfulness part. And one of the neat things neurologically is that playfulness tends to increase neurotrophic factors that promote healthy cell growth and repair and, and connection in the brain. And I thought a lot about that, about the importance of bringing up playfulness and exuberance, a, a not knowing, a childlike spirit to our own practices, which can otherwise become kind of mechanistic and heavy and dry. Yeah, and well, and it really comes through. And I think your um, your advice to make it fun is great advice, and just makes it a lot more enticing and sort of self self sustaining. Mm. No, is, thank you for that. Which is a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Rick, for returning to offer your deeply transformative wisdom. Reading Neurodharma for me was a mind opening experience, and I hope a lot of our listeners have gotten turned on and and will pick it up. I recommend this book for all sorts of reasons, but. Um, there's so many wonderful and specific practices that you offer, some of which you've mentioned here, but so many more um, yeah. to cult cultivate our highest happiness. And I know, too, that your Foundations of Wellbeing course offers a host of these practices, and we'll link to, to Neurodharma, your course, and then to your other books through our website. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you. And if I could say one last thing, um, you know, as you know from the book, uh, I quoted at the very end. Uh, I'll give it away here. Uh, it's a teaching from Joseph Goldstein, who you probably know, um, East Coast uh, person. And uh, he said to me one time after I was sharing an experience and my, wanting to make sure I was on the right track, you know, he's up further up the trail. And I'm saying, you know, is this the route? Did I take the step correctly and so forth? And he said, yeah, that's good, which is important. It's important to acknowledge that you're moving forward and what's working. And then he paused and smiled and twinkled and said, keep going. <laughs> and I think that's the truth of it. On any given day, we have this profound existential soul power to practice or not. And you can't do anything about the past, but you can practice today. And as we practice in the ways that work for us and we find our own ways and we practice as it's relevant to particular things, as we practice every day, uh, we grow, we change, we heal, we get happy, we progress, we can see that. And that's the invitation for everyone. Wherever you are, you can practice. And you can practice one of these seven things, and you can practice all of them at a beginning level and an intermediate level and beyond. And maybe I'll finish with this teaching from the Buddha who said, you know, basically a path with heart, I'm paraphrasing, a path with heart is good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good at the end. Thank you, Rick. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. You can find us on iTunes, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please help us out by writing a review on iTunes. We'd like to thank our interns, Dr. Catherine Foley-Saldania and Dr. Katie Lear. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources on our webpage. We're at offtheclockpsych.com.